Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, my name is Kent. If I hadn't had the chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 23, to that passage we just read. Matthew chapter 23. Um, About a week ago, my family and I spent the weekend in the Smoky Mountains with some of the members of City Church. It's something that we do every single year uh, for our members that we call family vacation. The idea is that if church is a family, as Colton mentioned earlier, well, then families should go on family vacations, right? That's only normal for that to happen, except like the good kind of family vacations, not like the type that they make cynical movies about in the 80s and 90s, the good kind of family vacation, at least that's the hope. Um, So every year we get two of those large side-by-side cabins in Gatlinburg and we just spend the weekend relaxing together, playing board games, celebrating all that God has been up to in our church over the past year. One of my favorite things that we do as a church. Uh, One of the best parts of the weekend, I think, at least for me personally, is that on the first night that we're there, uh, we play a game called Never Have I Ever. Just for clarity, not the drinking game just before you get the wrong idea about what kind of church that we are. Um, It's a different version of Never Have I Ever. Um, the, The idea, the way that it works is that we set up a bunch of chairs in a circle in the same room, but there's one less chair than there are people in the room. And the person without the chair has to stand in the middle and they say, never have I ever blank. And they can put anything in the blank that they want, almost, within reason. Uh, And and then what happens is if you have done that thing, you have to get up and you have to find a different chair. So if somebody says, never have I ever lived in California, if you ever have lived in California, you have to get up and find a new seat. It's like musical chairs, but way more personally embarrassing to everyone. Um, That's the idea behind the game. It's just a cool way to get to know each other. We do at least try to keep it PG rated when we play the game. Um, For instance, you're allowed to say, never have I ever been arrested, but you're not allowed to say what you were arrested for. We just feel like that's a safe (laughs) rule of thumb um, in how we play the game. Uh, So we try to keep it PG, but sometimes we're unsuccessful. For instance, this past year, uh, one person said, never have I ever smoked pot. And I kid you not, the only person to get up was me. (laughs) I had to get up and find a new seat. And I kindly reminded everyone in the room at that point that lying is a sin. (laughs) Because there's no way that out of 50 to 60 people in the room, I was the only one that had ever done that in my life. But that's the idea behind the game. Um, It's a really fun game to play with everybody. One, because you get to watch people like semi-tackle each other trying to get a seat uh, in the circle. But it's also kind of cool because you get to know people in our church. I, for instance, did not know how many people in our church had ever been arrested. That's very useful information to know, I think. Um, So it was a fun game. Uh, And honestly, that was just one part of a really, really fun weekend. Um, that we had together. And I think 
part of the reason that it's so fun, at least for me, is because family vacation every spring is one of many reminders that I get throughout the year that while I technically am helping to lead this church family, I also just get to be a part of it. When I think about all of the things that I love about our church here, very rarely are those things related to me being one of the people in charge of it. It's usually just related to me getting to exist within this community. And I've learned through the years that that experience of mine is somewhat rare among church leaders. For a lot of pastors I know personally, when they think about their church, they don't primarily think of it as a community that they're a part of. They usually think of it as more like an organization, a 501c3 that they have the burden of leading. And I praise God that at least a vast majority of the time, that is not how I feel towards our church at all. And I'm really, really grateful for that. But I will tell you that dynamic where where I just get to feel like I'm a part of our church is something that we have worked really, really hard to cultivate here at City Church. From the beginning, me and the other leaders here said that we didn't want it to ever feel like we were on a pedestal. And yes, I do realize the irony because I am currently on a stage, (laughs) but you guys get what I mean. Metaphorically, that we we never wanted to feel like we were on a pedestal as leaders of this church. We didn't want to be thought of as the pastors, but rather just as normal people belonging to a community who happen to have the responsibility of leading it and shepherding it. And that culture can be a really difficult thing to cultivate within a church. The natural inclination in us, I think, is to give in to some form of hierarchy within the church, right? For pastors to see themselves as elevated above other people in the church, and even for other people in the church to see their leaders as somehow spiritually superior or more important than them. I think that's the tendency that takes place in our hearts and minds in communities like this. And today's passage, the one that we're going to cover in our time together this morning, is very much about that tendency. In chapter 23, Jesus is going to begin a very pointed critique of certain religious leaders in his day. And much of the critique is connected to them being put on a pedestal of sorts, both because of their own actions and the actions of others. People saw these leaders, and they saw themselves often, as existing on a somewhat different plane than everyone else. The two groups that Jesus is going to speak about in detail are the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. If you're newer to the Bible, these two groups were major components of the religious leadership in Jesus' day. The teachers of the law were pretty much exactly what it sounded like. They were those that were experts in teaching and interpreting the Old Testament law. The Pharisees were a sect of Judaism that was particularly concerned with the ethical and purity laws in the Old Testament. The regulations around what foods you ate and didn't ate, what you wore, how you conducted yourself in public, those sort of things. But basically, these two groups groups, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were usually seen as authorities on what it meant to know and worship God. That was the idea. But beginning in our passage today, we are going to find out that Jesus has quite a few problems with the way these leaders are living, teaching, and acting. 
Namely, that they were operating precisely the opposite of the way he wants leaders to operate within the community of faith. And and we're going to let what he says to them give us lenses today for what we should look for and what we should look out for in leaders, particularly spiritual leaders. That's the idea. So let's take a look at the passage starting in chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds... And to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So Moses' seat was a literal chair occupying a prominent place in the synagogue of Jesus' day. So I I don't know if you grew up in a church tradition like I did, but in my church we had like three or four fancy chairs on the stage that leaders or maybe deacons would sit in during the service. Anybody else familiar with that concept? So that was the idea in my church. And I think that's very much the idea in the synagogue of Jesus' day, but way fancier. So I don't know if the chairs were like jeweled or bedazzled or what the situation was exactly, but however those chairs looked, it would have been obvious that whoever sat in that chair was a big deal, was in a prominent place within the synagogue. Because it was believed that whoever sat in that chair was sitting in the long, rich tradition of Moses, the the person in Israel's history that first received the law directly from God. This seat was a very big deal in Jesus' day. Verse 3, so, Jesus continues, you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. So here's Jesus' first critique of these religious leaders in his day. Evidently, they were saying good things. They they were teaching largely correct ideas about the scriptures and about obedience to God. So the issue was not with the content of what they said. It was that they themselves didn't do what they said. The issue was that they were not implementing those correct things that they taught into their own lives in any substantial way. Their lives were not consistent with their teaching. In other words, their character was not consistent with their position. And Jesus says that we must learn how to distinguish between those two things, especially in how we view religious leaders. Now, it's hard for me to think of an idea that we more need to understand in our day and age than this one, especially when it comes to how we view spiritual leaders. I think a lot of us as followers of Jesus have a difficult time distinguishing between a gifted leader and a spiritually mature leader. We assume at times that if a person is gifted, whether that's in regards to leadership ability or charisma or Bible knowledge or whatever the case may be, maybe some combination of those things, if they're gifted, we assume that must mean that they're spiritually mature enough to lead. We often confuse giftedness for character, which helps explain why we are often so shocked when a gifted leader of some sort has some kind of moral failure that we witness. We're often shocked at that because we just assumed that a person with that much ability must have had the character to back it up, but turns out they didn't. Now, I want to be clear that the reality is that anybody, even the most mature follower of Jesus, can fall prey to sin. Sin is deceitful like that. But sometimes, I think the reason we're shocked when that sort of thing happens is because without thinking about it, we have confused giftedness with character. 
And those are not the same thing. A, a person can be extraordinarily gifted and yet very immature at the same time. For example, Kanye West. <laughs> Kanye West is an incredibly talented musician, one of the great artists of our day, I would, I, I would argue. But not a chance I'm letting that man babysit for me. <laughs> or do much of anything that requires sane thinking at all or paying attention, right? Because giftedness is not to be equated with character. They are not the same thing sometimes at all. And they shouldn't be confused with each other. Now, just to be abundantly clear, this idea, this critical way of thinking about leadership, this very much applies to me and any of the other leaders in our church. Do not assume that just because I stand up here on Sundays and say things that resonate with you or sound mature to you, that I am therefore automatically spiritually mature. Don't assume that. Do not judge my character by my giftedness. Judge my character by my character. We've mentioned this so many times before in our church, but in the Bible, when it lists out qualifications for what it means to be a leader of a church, it barely even mentions giftedness or skill or talent. The only skill qualification it gives in those lists is that a person must be, quote, able to teach. That's the only thing it says. Every other qualification it gives is character-based, not skill-based. In the kingdom of God, what qualifies you to be a leader is your character. That's the standard to which you should hold myself and any other leader that you trust, spiritually speaking. Okay, let's keep moving through our passage. This next critique Jesus offers is very brief, but I think it is very, very important for us to grasp. Verse 4, they, that is the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So Jesus says that hearing these Pharisees and teachers of the law teach and interpret the law is like having weight after weight after weight placed squarely on your shoulders as the listener. But Jesus says these leaders aren't willing to do anything to help people carry the weight. In other words, they are far more interested in telling people what to do than they are in helping people learn how to do it. Now, I would argue that this second critique is a very natural outworking, very natural consequence of the first critique that Jesus just offered. Because think about it, if you as a leader are not actively obeying the scriptures, you are not going to know much about how to help other people obey. And what's further, you're not actually going to understand the difficulty of obeying because you don't spend much time doing it. All of that is going to impact your tone and your disposition and your posture when teaching what God says to others. You're going to just expect people to immediately do everything you say without realizing fully the gravity and the nuance and the difficulty of what you're calling them to. Put simply, if we have not done the difficult work of, of following Jesus, we are going to have very little patience and understanding towards other people learning how to follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is getting at here. So Jesus says, look out for leaders that like to weigh people down with their teaching all because they don't know the difficulty of obeying firsthand in their own life. Verse five, everything they do is done for people to see. 
They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. Jesus says, essentially, it's all a show. Everything they do is a show. So even the areas where it looks like these leaders are actively obeying the scriptures, even those things are mostly just done for appearance's sake. Phylacteries were essentially leather strips that you wore on your arms and around your head. Tassels were pieces of fabric that hung from the corner of your garment. Both of these things would have passages of scripture and Old Testament commands written on them as reminders to the person wearing them to obey. Now, none of these things were necessarily bad in themselves. Depending on how you interpret certain passages, we think even Jesus wore at least tassels on his garment himself. So none of these things were necessarily bad in and of themselves, that wearing them was based on a passage from the book of Deuteronomy. But Jesus says the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they did all of this for show. The Pharisees intentionally made each item of clothing as large and as obvious and as visible as it could be so that people would see them wearing all of those things and go, wow, that leader must take obedience to the scripture very, very seriously. In other words, these leaders took something that was meant to be personal and reflective and a a personal reminder to obey the scriptures and instead they made it performative. They wore it all simply so people would notice them wearing those things and think of them highly as a result of it. Verse 6, they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. Remember Moses' seat from earlier, right? Verse 7, they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. So these leaders, they loved being honored by other people publicly. And they specifically loved it when people referred to them with titles of honor, like the title rabbi, for instance. Okay, so I need to tell you guys a story. A guy I know a number of years back was going to visit a buddy of his from high school who we'll just call Rick. Rick had become the pastor of a relatively large church in the area, and his church had a policy put into place by Rick himself, where everybody was encouraged to refer to him as Pastor Rick. So not Rick, not Rick who happens to be our pastor, but Pastor Rick, almost like pastor was his first name. That's how they were told to refer to him. So my friend shows up at Rick's office, excuse me, Pastor Rick's office, and says to the woman at the front desk, hey, I'm here to see Rick. To which she says, oh, Pastor Rick? And he says, well, yeah, but we were buddies in high school, so he's just Rick to me. And she goes, okay, well, I'll let him know that you're here, but just so you know, around here, we all call him Pastor Rick out of respect for his office and position. She's evidently dead serious about all of this. So my friend just goes, okay, thank you, and tries not to laugh at how ridiculous this whole situation is. Because he's thinking to himself, this guy once mooned me in high school. Like, I cannot, with a straight face, call him Pastor Rick. That should be a general rule, right, about using titles to refer to someone. If I've seen your bare butt, I cannot refer to you with a title. (laughs) So he goes back to Rick's office. He sits down to catch up with his friend. But before he does, he just has to clear the air. He says, hey, man, this is is so weird. Uh, But everybody out there is telling me that I have to call you Pastor Rick. And and I told them that you and I go way back and that that's a weird thing for me to do, but they kept telling me that that's what y'all do around here. Can, Can you just tell them that it's cool and I don't need to call you that? And I kid you not, 
Rick looks at his friend, who he's known for years, 100% serious, and goes, well, actually, I would prefer that. Here at our church, we have a culture of honor, so I ask everyone to call me Pastor Rick in order to demonstrate that culture of honor. And my friend, without skipping a beat, says back to Rick, "Uh, dude, if you tell me one more time that I have to use a title to refer to you, I am going to come up with my own title. And it's going to be Captain Butthole. That's what I'm going to call you. That is the only title I will be using regularly to refer to you. So full disclosure, I told you that story partly because I think it's hilarious and I thought you guys would find it enjoyable as well. But second, because I've found out through the years that this is actually a thing at a lot of churches. Pastors that will insist on being addressed with a title. And many of them, as an explanation for why they do that, why they have that as a practice in their church, simply say that it's just because they want to have a culture of honor within their church. Now, I'm all for honor. The Bible talks about us honoring one another as followers of Jesus. But to use that as a justification for that practice is kind of odd to me, especially when you realize that that is precisely the motivation that Jesus calls out in this passage. He says that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law love titles because, and I'm quoting here, they love the places of honor. That's actually Jesus' precise problem with the practice. So these churches that do this are not just doing the thing that Jesus says not to do, they're doing it for the precise reason Jesus says not to do it. So that's not better, right? But real practically here, this is why here at City Church, we do not ask any of you to call me Pastor Kent or Jeff, Pastor Jeff, or Marcus, Pastor Marcus. I don't need you to feel bad if you've ever said that to me, even though I probably did look at you a little bit weird when you said it. But the reason we don't ask anyone to call us that is because that would be doing something very similar to, if not identical to, what Jesus says not to do in this passage. You don't need to use titles to address us. It's just not necessary. And Jesus is about to explain in the passage why it's not necessary. So look with me at verse 8. But you, Jesus is now speaking to followers of Jesus in general, you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, which is what rabbi means, teacher. You have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. So let me just try to offer a little bit of clarity on what Jesus isn't intending to say in this part of the passage. So let's start with the most obvious one. Uh, First, Jesus is not saying that you can't call your biological father, father, or dad, or anything like that. He's simply saying not to use that as a spiritual title for someone in authority over you. Second, Jesus is not saying that it is wrong for you to simply state that me or Jeff or Marcus are pastors of our church, as in, oh, that's Kent, he's a pastor here. As far as I can tell, that's just a description. That's totally fine for you to do. Third, and this is really, really important because some people have misunderstood it this way. Third, he is definitely not dismissing the idea of leadership altogether within the church, as if to say, oh, the church doesn't actually need any leaders at all. If that's what he was saying, there are a lot of passages later in the New Testament that don't make any sense at all. 
because they seem to talk about leadership within the church as, it's, as if it is a necessary and very, very important thing. None of that is what Jesus is intending to communicate here. He is simply saying that you should be wary of and watch out for leaders within the church that insist on people addressing them by their title. And especially leaders who seem to really love titles because it makes them feel honored or elevated or revered by others. That posture, Jesus says, goes directly against the grain of the culture in the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, there is only one rabbi. There is only one father. There is only one instructor. And both leaders and non-leaders within the church should operate as if that's how it works. Let's finish out our passage and then we'll talk a little bit about some practical implications for all of this. For now, look with me at verse 11. The greatest among you, Jesus says, will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So this right here is one of Jesus' all-time favorite sayings in the Gospels. Almost any time that Jesus wants to talk about the idea of leadership or what he calls greatness in the kingdom of God, he will throw in something resembling the two verses that we just read. It is basically the operating principle of how leadership works in God's kingdom. Jesus says that the greatest among you, i.e. what many consider to be the leaders among you, should operate as if they are the servants. That's the idea. That word servant was often used to describe the lowest level of employee working for a king, the bottom of the org chart, in other words. It was the word for someone who advances someone else's interest at the expense of their own interest. So in Jesus' mind then, a leader is someone who voluntarily takes the lowest position that there is in regards to others and looks for ways to advance other people's interests at the expense of their own. That to Jesus is precisely what a leader is called to do in the kingdom of God. So this is the origin of a term that has probably become somewhat cliche to those of us that have spent much time around the church, but is nonetheless a very biblical concept. It's the concept of servant leadership. That's often the word you'll hear used, servant leadership, which just to be clear, does not mean a leader who chooses to act humbly from time to time, but rather a leader who leads by serving. That's the idea. It's someone who sees their role, their position as a leader as existing for the express purpose of coming alongside and helping and serving other people in their midst. Just to be honest with you, I don't know that we fully grasp just how countercultural this concept of leadership is. I don't know that we fully realize just how opposite it is from the way that the world, and if I were to imagine, probably most of us naturally tend to think about leadership. So to try to help us understand the difference here, I drew us some diagrams. And by drew us some diagrams, I mean the computer helped me because if I drew them, they would not be helpful to anyone. So in the first diagram, I've drawn out how I think many people assume that leadership works within the church. Here's that diagram. This is how I think most people think that leadership works within the church. 
So in this model, a, a regular person, which I couldn't come up with a better name for that, a regular person in the church honors the leader, right? They honor the leader, the titles and all, and then the leader in turn serves God. That's how I think people often assume leadership is supposed to work. And sometimes leaders prefer that people think about it that way because it certainly works out well for the leaders when they do. But according to Jesus, that is not at all how leadership works in the kingdom of God. According to him, it works more like the second diagram. That's Jesus' model of leadership. In Jesus' model, a regular person does not exist to serve the leader or honor the leader. If anything, it's the other way around. The leader actually exists to serve everyone else. A leader is a person on the same plane, same spot on the org chart as everyone else, but that leader has actually chosen to use their position to put themselves below everyone else like a servant in order to empower them and train them and help them become more like Jesus as a result. That is what leadership is supposed to look like in the kingdom of God. Because remember what Jesus said back up in verse eight. He said, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one rabbi, and you are all brothers, siblings. You're all on the same level as one another. A healthy leader, then, is someone who recognizes that and sees themselves as existing to serve other people. So, real practically, here at City Church, this means that if someone does not model the posture of a servant, in our view, they are not ready to lead because that's what leadership is in the kingdom of God. And if someone in a position of leadership already does not regularly embody the posture of a servant, that's not just a personality defect or a difference in leadership style. It is potentially a reason for them to be removed from leadership altogether if it is not repented of quickly and thoroughly. Because our conviction is that this is not just an interesting idea from Jesus about leadership. It is actually an operating principle for the kingdom of God and how we think about the idea of leadership. And we want our view of leadership to reflect that of Jesus. Okay, so with all of that unpacked, what should all of us do with all of this? Specifically, maybe those of you in the room that, that have no uh, expectations or aspirations of positions and formal leadership within the church. What does this all mean for you? I want you to think back with me for a second to the opening line of this passage. In verse 1, Matthew told us that Jesus said all of these things in verses 1 through 12, quote, to the crowds and to the disciples. Apparently, all of this teaching that Jesus just gave on the topic of leadership was not addressed to the spiritual leaders themselves, but to some portion of the general public. Now, obviously, at least 12 of the people in this group ended up becoming the so-called apostles. So they would play a fairly important leadership role within the early church. But best we can tell, nearly everybody else that heard this, in all likelihood, the vast majority of people listening that day to Jesus, they were not seriously considering positions of religious leadership. They would never become religious leaders. And yet, Jesus still felt that they needed to hear what he had to say 
about how and how not to lead. So why is that? Why does Jesus know, what does Jesus know, rather, that he thinks they need to know about everything that he just said? Likely, I think there's at least a few different things. One, I think Jesus knows that in some sense, all followers of Jesus are in at least a type of spiritual leadership. They're in at least a type of spiritual leadership. So look with me at Matthew 28. We'll put this up on the screen. In Matthew 28, Jesus says to his followers, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In short, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been officially commissioned by Jesus to teach and equip and lead and disciple other followers of Jesus. That's true whether or not you're on staff at a church. That's true whether or not you ever stand up on a stage. That's true whether you see yourself as incredibly gifted and spiritually mature and capable or whether you don't feel like you're any of those things at all. We are all called to do this as followers of Jesus, which means that in some sense, these cautions and instructions laid out in this passage towards those in spiritual leadership also apply to you at least in some way. You are also called to care more about how you live than what you say. You are also called to help people obey and not just tell them they must obey. You also are called to resist the urge to do things simply for the sake of appearances. And you also are called to resist the allure of honor for its own sake. These instructions are directed at formal religious leaders to be sure, but their application very much includes all of us as followers of Jesus. It should be applied by anyone who claims to know and worship Jesus. The second thing that I think we can learn from this passage is this, and this might sound a little bit weird coming from me, but we need you to hold us as leaders to the things in this passage. We need you as a church body to hold us as leaders to the things Jesus lays out in this passage. The majority of you are here in this room today because in some sense or another, you consider us to be your leaders. You consider yourself a part of this community and therefore you're expecting us to lead you and help you and equip you to become more like Jesus. And that is an incredible responsibility. It is a tall task, but it is a joyous task for us to have. Not many days go by where we do not feel the incredible privilege that it is to do that as your leaders. But with that said, I would humbly ask for your help. If you consider yourself a part of this church, would you expect us to lead in the healthy ways laid out in this passage? And would you expect us not to lead in the unhealthy ways laid out in this passage? On one hand, I get that none of the leaders here will ever embody all of these things perfectly. But at the same time, we should consistently be striving for it. We should consistently be striving for the ethic of leadership that Jesus instructs us to have. So expect us as leaders to not just say the right things, but to be the right kinds of people. Expect us not to just tell you what to do, but to demonstrate and show you how it's done with our own lives. Expect us to care about our personal holiness and character more than we care about public demonstrations of it. 
and expect us to lead you primarily by serving you. And when we don't do those things well, tell us so that we can own it and repent of it. I want to ask that you would join us in helping create an environment where healthy leadership is expected and appreciated. So I've got friends who serve as pastors in context where they are essentially expected to be people's spiritual heroes. I do not want that job. I know pastors who are celebrated always for their charisma and their ability and their giftedness and never for their character. I don't want that kind of pressure. So every day that goes by, I become more and more grateful that we have a church that celebrates ordinary, consistent, faithful leadership. So my request to you is simple. At City Church, can we keep it that way? Let's never become a church that celebrates things that the scriptures caution us against. Let's be a church that values the things that Jesus values, that approaches things the way that Jesus wants us to approach them. And finally, I think this passage at least does one more thing in us, and this one's really, really important for us to get. I think it calls us to marvel and stand amazed at the incredible leader that Jesus is. As we say often around here, Jesus never calls us to do anything that he is not willing to do himself. So when Jesus describes in this passage the type of leaders that we are called to be and the type of leaders that we are called to trust, it's important for us to realize that he embodies every bit of this in his own life. Jesus had no disconnect between what he taught and how he lived. He told people to take on his teaching, which was not cumbersome, was not heavy loads. It was where, quote, the yoke was easy and the burden was light. Jesus cared more about private holiness and communion with the Father than he did about public displays of holiness for other people to see. And Jesus gave up every bit of honor he had as a servant for our sake. The Apostle Paul, who no doubt was thinking of teachings like this one from Jesus, once wrote this in Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what, according to Jesus, happens when someone chooses to humble themselves? They are what? Exalted. Look at this next part. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everything that we need to know about leadership is right there in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is what you look for in a leader. That's the litmus test. So this morning, we are going to go to the tables together as a church family, and we're going to celebrate that. We're going to take the bread and the cup, which are symbols 
of the moment that Jesus made himself nothing. The moment that he took on the very nature of a servant and that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because he did all of that, you and I get access to the Father, to this new reality opened up for us through the cross and resurrection. We get access to God's spirit who lives within us to help us learn how to humbly lead and sacrifice and take the posture of a servant like Jesus himself did. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited to participate in all of that with us as we celebrate him and the type of leader that he is. Let's pray.